Hello, friends, and welcome to The Membership. This is a podcast about the works and life of Wendell Berry, the Kentucky farmer, poet, novelist, essayist, activist, and thinker. My name is John Pattison, and today I'm joined, as always, by my two fellow members. This is Jason Hardy. This is Tim Wassum. Hey, guys. Well, I'm looking forward to our episode today. We're doing another episode on poetry. This is our second poetry episode. I was thinking, though, as, as we were kind of getting ready for this for this episode, that one of the features, Tim, that I really liked in your other podcast, the Erisable podcast, was what you guys called Fresh Points. And it was a time at sort of at the beginning of the episode where you could talk, each of you could you know, in turn talk about what was new or what had captured your attention in the world of analog writing tools since your last recording. And I had this yeah. idea that maybe we could try to do uh, something like that here with the understanding that it would we would have the most the broadest, most expansive uh, criteria for what might be relevant in a podcast about about Wendell Berry. And so I don't yeah, have a name for great. it. Do you guys have any ideas? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll have to we'll have to crowdsource that one and figure that out with other people. I like the idea though. I think that's great. What do you have for this week? Yeah, I uh, one thing that I could definitely talk about is that I have really fallen in love with the soundtrack for the Look and See documentary that was uh, that came out. Was it uh, Laura Dunn uh, made and put out? Was in twenty seventeen, I think. And and the soundtrack was done uh, by uh, somebody named Carrie. I don't know if it's Musy or Muzzy. Uh, Carrie M U Z Z E Y. It's a look and see a portrait of Wendell Berry official soundtrack, and it's really beautiful uh, acoustic music. Good, uh, good writing music. It's excellent music to put on while you're writing. I regularly listen to it in class, but I was also listening to it while I was reading these poems. It's good, mm. good, good reading music. So I'd I'd highly recommend that. So that's my Wendell moments. <laughs> Your farm moments fresh of Mr. Farm Farm Fresh Point there. There you go. <laughs> moments of Mr. Berry. I don't know. Uh, but what about you, Jason? Well, my head has been mostly in uh, this humanities class that I've been teaching um, for these last few weeks. And uh, I guess it is uh, loosely Wendell Berry adjacent, but uh, the last thing that we read in that class was uh, Thomas of Chilano's Life of St. Francis. I feel like St. Francis is a, uh, a figure that you could draw some interesting parallels to Wendell Berry. Um, not only was you know Francis very much uh, alive to the natural world and um, even giving honor to animals as God's creatures, uh, but he's also someone who I think uh, lived out Wendell Berry's call to. Uh, and you're going to have to help me on this, John. But in the the manifesto, Mad Farmer Liberation Front, uh, when he says that when the generals and politicos can mm-hmm. predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Yep. Uh, St. Francis absolutely lost his mind in the best mm. possible way. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, uh, his father was a, a wealthy merchant, and he started out his uh, adult life as, you know, working in the family business and um, making lots of money. And uh, he um, had a revelation of the gospel and uh, promptly lost his mind uh, <laughs> in, in the best possible yeah. way. He did things like go to... Uh, take uh the the cloth that that his family's business had made to a distant city and sell it all and uh then just stop at a church on the way home and just leave the money sitting in a windowsill like all the money uh and it got so bad that his father had to drag him in front of the bishop and ask the bishop <laughs> to uh to to make him go back to uh his old sensible ways to fix him and uh francis stripped off all of his clothes and threw them on the ground uh, and said you gave me these clothes and uh you know i'm I'm, I'm giving them back to you. I, w- I won't take part in this. And I think his dad's like the good place where they're like with Janet, where they try to put like the little. Yeah. She basically has one of those little like reset buttons, reset like an buttons. iPhone. Yeah. yeah. Like put it Makes into sense. her neck and it yeah. resets her. Yeah. Do you find the reset button on this guy? Yeah. But anyways, uh, I felt like Francis was a was a good uh, a good figure to look back to when you're when you're reading Wendell Berry. Yeah. I 
I can't help but making the connection with that to I was I think I mentioned this at some point with you guys, but I'm reading again David Sedaris's collection Calypso, mm-hmm. and he has an essay in there called Untamed, which is starts out talking about Saint Francis. Have mm-hmm. you read this one? No, I haven't. I'll read you guys the first paragraph, but it's um, uh, it says aside from Peter who supposedly guards the gates of heaven and is a pivotal figure in any number of jokes. The only saint who's ever remotely interested me is Francis of Assisi, who was friends with the animals. I recall pictures of him, birds perched on his shoulders and his outstretched hands, deer at his feet, maybe a cougar in the background, looking <laughs> on and thinking, there are some birds and deer I can... <laughs> there are some birds and deer I can kill, but wait, who's this guy? Creatures gravitated to St. Francis because they recognized something in him, a quality that normal men lacked. Let that be me, I used to wish when I was ten and felt so desperately alone. There'd usually be a hamster clutched <laughs> clutched tight in my fist, trying with all my might to, to, to escape, instead of resting companionably in my palm the way he was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty wonderful. So, uh, gosh, love that guy. What about you, John? A couple days ago, Congress passed the uh, a five-year, $867 billion farm bill. And it was a, a rare moment in Washington in that it had huge bipartisan support. Uh, and uh, President Trump is expected to sign it soon. And according to the Washington Post, the farm bill provides, among many other items, permanent funding for farmers markets and local food programs, it provides permanent funding for a number of programs that Congress was funding on a temporary basis, five years at a time, and these include promotional funds for local farmers markets, research funds for organic farming, and money for organizations working to train the next generation of farmers at a time when experts have raised concerns about the aging of the industry. And the the news that this farm bill had passed reminded me that uh, Back in 2009, the Land Institute released what they called a proposal for the 50-year farm bill. And the Land Institute was founded by Wendell Berry's friend, Wes Jackson. And they researched perennial crops and polyculture farming solutions that they see as alternatives to conventional ag practices, which are more destructive. Farm bills, as I mentioned, are usually passed five years at a time, but the 50-year bill took the long view to address problems like long-term food security, soil fertility, soil erosion. A lot of it is in language that I don't understand, but (laughs) my basic understanding was that the 50-year farm bill started from the position that agriculture should mimic nature and that nature keeps the ground covered. And so to promote the... 50-year farm bill, Wendell Berry wrote a couple pieces either by himself or with Wes Jackson, and like they proposed inverting how agriculture is done now, where it's 80% annuals and 20% perennials currently, and they wanted to, to reverse that to 80% perennials and 20% annuals. Yeah, he, Wendell Berry says in his essay on the Atlantic that um, annual plants are nature's emergency medical service, that they're essentially placeholders until perennial cover is reestablished. And he basically says that because we have 80% of our agriculture in annuals, we're living in a state of perpetual emergency. Hmm. It's fascinating. I think it's still very relevant. I don't know how much of a campaign is still being uh, pushed in order to, to to get it passed eventually, but it's worth reading for sure Wendell Berry's pieces in the Atlantic and the New York Times, and we'll put some links in the show notes uh, in case people want to want to check those out. That's fascinating. All right, well, let's talk about the reading for today. Um, today we are discussing Wendell Berry's collection of poetry entitled Findings, and Findings was originally published in 1969 by the Prairie Press, the text that we're using is from the new Collected Poems, which was published by CounterPoint in 2012. Astute readers will notice in the new Collected Poems that Findings comes before Openings, which was published in 1968. And this is a little bit in the weeds, but I, I think it'll pay off for context. I was curious why Findings was before Openings, even though 
the rest of it is laid out pretty much in, in chronological order. And so I couldn't find an actual copy of findings uh, for sale. I mean, they're, they're out of print. They're very expensive. I, but I found a copy at a local library, and I checked it out. And in the beginning of the book, there's a note from Wendell Berry that says that these poems were be, were begun in the fall of 1960 and completed in early 1965. And then he writes that this book overlaps the last 19 poems of The Broken Ground, published in 1964, and the first 14 poems of Openings, published in 1968. So again, like this is in the weeds. There are a lot of titles. Basically what it comes down to is that even though Findings was published after Openings, it was published third, in time it sits in the middle of The Broken Ground, the first collection, when we talked about in an earlier episode, and Openings. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, and that fits in with how how we're approaching the, the the poetry that we wanted to make sure we were covering it chronologically like to to his life so yeah that makes sense yeah and i think i don't remember specifically but i think in our episode on the broken ground we detected a shift in the poems as we went through that collection am i remembering that correctly yeah Yeah, i think think so so. yeah like it was they were you know potentially started when he he and his and his family were in new york and then maybe in uh in italy for a time but you could you could kind of sense that there was a coming homeness toward mm-hmm. in some of the later poems. Yeah, we definitely talked about that like little transitional gap in there. I, I remember that now uh, for sure. Where it seemed like he the 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 first I think the front end of the poems felt a little uh, anxious or a little more like uh, angsty or something, and mm-hmm. then by the end of it, he kind of they they settled in a little bit. To what settled in a little bit more than to what we're used to from his future poems. But. Yeah. So anyway, I f- I thought that context was was interesting and helpful. We are not going to use the out of print text from the collection itself. We're going to stick with new collected poems. Uh, but if you want to potentially look for this book at your local library and read everything, I say that because new collected poems does not include the entire text of findings. So the original published book is split into three sections, but the new collected poems includes pretty much all of the second and third sections of that book, but only one poem from the first section. And even that is actually, it's changed a little bit for reasons that I don't know. Like he didn't want the rest of it included and at some point had edited even the, the, the selection that was included from section one, uh, which is the design of the house. I wonder if they were uh, at some point sort of absorbed into something else he was writing. That like could if be. he ended up like transitioning him into other poems or, or even incorporating into his fiction or something. I'm just curious if he, if he, if he felt that those ideas were redundant because of other things he had written. But... That's possible because he did that with his fiction, right? We encountered that with a short story that wasn't included in... I want to say the Library of America, but it was essentially a chapter in Jaber Crow. Yeah. Yeah. Don't send a boy to do a man's work. Yeah. 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 So that's a you know that's a fairly technical and dry, but in case folks are wanting to go even deeper, you can check out, literally check out a copy of, from your local library, maybe of of findings. Or drop 150 bucks on a first edition on eBay or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. For the high rollers listening, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One one copy I, I found was three hundred dollars for a first oh. edition. Wow, yeah. Fair enough. Uh so yeah, so we're gonna talk about three poems today, the three poems that are included in the new collected poems. And the first one is called The Design of the House, Ideal and Hard Time. And of the three poems that we read for today, this was, for me, the most challenging. It just took more work. And so the poem is set in the winter. And throughout the poem, he seems to be setting up this tension between seeming opposites. Tension between perfection and imperfect reality. Tension between winter and summer. Between light and dark. 
between the white snow and the dark house in the snow, between the white Queen's Aunt, Queen Anne's lace and the dark soil, between peace and chaos, between sleeping and wakefulness, between history and the present. Hmm. And then sort of he describes a process of envisioning and making a home in the midst of those tensions. And it reminded me of an architectural dome. And I, I'm not, I'm obviously not an architect, so I don't understand completely how this works. But my understanding is that what holds up an arch or a dome is the tension, like the compression of these different parts coming together. And in one point in the poem, Wendelberry writes, Love foresees a jointure composing a house, a marriage of contraries, compendium of opposites and equilibrium. And I was reminded that the word dome comes from the Latin domus, domus, and that domus is also the origin of our word domestic, which means house or home. And by coincidence, Orion Magazine published an essay by Wendell Berry uh, last month where he actually talks about this. He says that to domesticate a place is to make a home of it. And to be domesticated is to be at home. And so all of that is to say that I read this by the fourth or fifth time reading through it. I read this as a poem about homemaking, mm-hmm. about making a home despite everything, despite the darkness and the chaos and all of that. In fact, in the midst of that, holding that tension, creating a home there. So, but as I said, this was the most challenging poem for me. So, I mean, what were your guys' first impressions reading through this one? Your description of it, I think, was extremely helpful to me. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think this is sort of a difficult poem to get into. I mean, it's long. Um, it's got broken up into several sections that uh, may be kind of hard to sort of relate to one another uh, at first reading. I think you hit it on the head. I mean, it is a poem about making a home in spite of everything that is around you. And I mean, I think there's some really sort of dark existential moments in this poem Hmm. um, where he's sort of considering what is even the purpose of making a home? Is it even something worthwhile to do in this, you know, world that we're living in? And of course the answer is yes um, for him, but that requires, uh, that requires hope. Um, is there a certain section that you like notice that a lot because uh, it's with Wendell Berry hearing <laughs> hearing any moment in which he even is acknowledging uh, like a question of that is sure. really interesting which I mean being early in his life makes sense but uh, yeah but like what, what what part brought out that kind of the tension of like whether it's something worth doing yeah I mean I think um, maybe sections six and seven so the sections of this poem are numbered I'll start in section six and read through the end of section seven this is a love love poem for you Tanya among wars among the brutal forfeitures of time in this house among its latent fires among all that honesty must see I accept your dying and love you nothing mitigates And for our Mary, chosen by the blind hungering of our blood, precious and periled in our happy mornings, whose tears are mine. And here's section seven. There's still a degree of sleep recalls the vast empty dream I slept in as a child, sometimes contained a chaos tangled like fish lines snarled in hooks. Sometimes a hook wetted, severe, drawing the barbed darkness to a point. Sometimes I seemed merely to be falling. The house also has taken shape in it. Yeah, I was pretty sure he was just describing the chaos of a house full of kids. That that may well be. (laughs) The house also has taken the shape of the chaos of having a a family. Maybe so. I'm I'm only sort of joking. but (laughs) You you may well be right. You may well be right. But, I mean, there are several other places where I feel like it comes to a head when he's Mm -hmm. saying this is a love poem for you, Tanya, among wars. Hmm. Um, I was I was struck at that point. Yeah, that caught me off guard. The, the direct uh, addressing Tanya directly. Sure. Um, that was, 
and that was a moment in a poem that did it does seem kind of opaque at some port, points where you're like struggling to f- see what's going on and then when that suddenly hit it was like it made it very personal which is not something i mean just to just to see tanya's name in there and see mary's name in there was really really striking for me mm-hmm. i was like if there was an emotional moment in this poem for me it was that moment where yeah where he like really brought it home and like sort of slid it took it out of the like metaphorical poetry land and was just like, no, I'm writing about something I have to write about right now. Like I have yeah. to say this. I'm, I'm, this is something I'm struggling with. Yeah. From the abstract True. to the very mm-hmm. intimate, very particular. Yeah. 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 What about you, Tim? What yeah. were your sort of first impressions of this? Yeah. I, it's, it was interesting, John, to hear you talk about the, the design element of it or like the structure, like where you were thinking where that was, where you were drawn to. Um, Cause I think, I agree with you without realizing that I would have agree- was going to agree with you, or I wouldn't have put it in those words. But um, I don't feel like I'm the best reader of poetry. I feel like I, I have to work really hard at it. And so I read through this one several times to, uh, over the last few days. But for me, one thing I always have to do is I have to, for myself, establish like a setting of where the narrator is. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but like with poems, I always need to like imagine where they're speaking from. And so for me, uh, where I felt the most comfortable reading this poem, uh, or not physically where I, but like the the image that felt the most comfortable for me was imagining uh, Barry or the narrator basically sleepless in bed and just entertaining all of the thoughts that are racing through his head about what it means to have a home. And to like settle, like capital S settle, you know, um, somewhere, somewhere that you're going to stay, somewhere you're going to be for a long time. Um, and a little, this brings in a little bit of those kind of anxieties that come with that, that even, even Wendell Berry had at some point. But all of these moments that the first reading felt very disjointed, like these very like disjointed ruminations on ideas or on, on images and things like that, um, after the second reading, this, this poem very much rewarded that second reading and made me see that these all fit together, kind of like you were saying, as far as like tensions that push against each other but make a whole, like that hold things up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to, you know, I, I always have to give myself sort of a setting of where the narrator is, but I also always have to tell myself to, um, I always, and this maybe it's because I'm a teacher, but I always have to tell myself to take it, to not take it so seriously. You know, when I'm reading poetry sometimes, at least for the first couple of readings, like take it in the simplest way you can to start with. And that helped for me because um, when I did that, I was able to take these different sections piece by piece and not worry about taking in the whole. Those were two things that as far as my first impressions that really, really hit me. I imagine this being him sleepless in bed it's at night or whatever and he's just or maybe he's sitting in his writing shed and he's thinking through all of these things and he can't really pull them together in a way that's neat but he can pull all the ideas together and they sort of make their own they sort of build themselves into the house in a way that he you know maybe was unexpected in the way that's um you know like that that section that jason just read um where to go the uh, the house also has take has taken shape in it in that chaos like he can't control it, but all of these chaotic images and things come together to make uh, something that is perfectly imperfect. So. Yeah, I imagine that too. I imagined him, again, because he, he talks so much about the contrast between dark and light and uh, dark and, and white. You know, mm-hmm. in a dark morning, sort of, I was imagining a dark head on a white pillow and a white house on a dark morning. And, and and embedded in snow, I love that yeah. image of like the mm-hmm. house being like a seed that's stuck in the snow mm-hmm. that hasn't blossomed yet. Like, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but that's I, I loved that as well. Yeah. I I didn't mark every single one of them, but there were there's got to be seven or eight different sections in this collection where he makes that comparison with the white. You actually using the words white and black to describe things, the black blackness of things and the whiteness of things and. And it's all about contrasts all the way through. I don't know. It makes me think of this, whatever period of life that he seemed to be in at this point, and we could kind of do the math on that together, but uh, season of life where your kids are young and things are changing a lot, 
that it probably is easy to see things as sort of black and white or to see things as in a high contrast with, you know, his life living as a rising star in the literary world in New York versus living in Kentucky on this family farm and realizing that seeing them as black and white is not like a helpful, <laughs> it is not a helpful, helpful just, uh, separation to make. And that he can see, I, Jason and I were talking before we recorded about how much we love the beginning where he says that except an idea of perfection is as wild as light. There is no hand laid on it that, uh, you can't compare those two things and that perfection is just kind of in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. Uh, perfection. It's like almost like he's saying that perfection is just in accepting imperfection. Yeah. I mean, that, that is my favorite. I think you're about to ask what our other passages were, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is my, that is my, my favorite passage of the, of the whole poem is that opening. Um, except an idea of perfection is as wild as light. There is no hand laid on it. But the house is a shambles unless the vision of its perfection upholds it like a stone. Uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm a lot of times sort of a closeted Platonist, which is a weird thing to admit on a on a Wendell Berry podcast <laughs> uh, because he's such the opposite. But I see, I see him sort of acknowledging. Plato in this opening, maybe just because that's what I want to see in it. Uh, but but acknowledging the idea that sort of ideas of perfection have usefulness in the world, even if they're never actually going to be achieved. This is a rare place where Wendell Berry seems to acknowledge the usefulness of abstractions, if only to sort of direct things that... Uh, that actually happen in, in the particular. That's true. And that's, and with that, I like that point about the abstractions. And even like, if you think about it visually, uh, the birds, mm-hmm. right? The birds that he's, he's referring to these swifts. He almost like using these swifts and there's the, the black swift that's moving around. There's the, the yellow bird with black wings. There's all these birds throughout the poem that are always moving and almost makes it feel like, impressionism or something huh. where you're seeing sort of like a fuzzy image of like all the, 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 the action that's happening, all the movement that's happening around the house, whether it's the bird, whether it's the people, whether it's the weather, whether it's the actual house itself changing and growing. I like that idea because that's, that's true that his later poems definitely feel a lot more concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, I read the stanza that you just read, Jason. I read that to a few of my housemates last night. I don't know if the two of you are familiar with the Enneagram. Very, yeah. For our listeners who aren't familiar, the Enneagram is a model of personality in which there are nine primary types. And I definitely don't have time to get into it, but it's been a very useful (laughs) tool (laughs) for me personally. It's been helpful for me relationally with my wife and housemates um, in particular. And uh, so I live with... So there are three adult women in our house, in these three families, and all three of them are ones on the Enneagram. And uh, that... My people. Which, which is what? Yeah. You <laughs> yeah. Should, yeah sometimes referred to Sometimes referred to as the perfectionist. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and so it was... I read them this stanza last night. Except in idea, perfection is as wild as light. There is no <laughs> hand laid on it. But the house is a shambles unless the vision of its perfection upholds it like stone. Mm-hmm. And it's particularly relevant or particularly poignant for us now because we are just beginning this massive remodeling project in our home. And all three of the incredible women in our house have a vision for what our home will will be like. You know, we, we have agreed on values for the house but now it's time to do the physical remodeling that will make our house more reflective of our values, uh, things like hospitality. And so it was it was really cool to read it to them and to see their reaction, both to see themselves affirmed in it and also a reminder to that you ultimately have to hold loosely to that perfection because it's ultimately not attainable, but it's indispensable. 
Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah I'm I'm a very solid one on the Enneagram as well. So <laughs> that uh, that that may be what might well be why that first stanza is my favorite part of this whole poem, <laughs> <laughs> and why I'm a closeted Platonist. So at some point, I, we've had a great conversation here the last couple of days because they asked me, "What do you think Wendell Berry is on the Enneagram?" And I have I have no idea. And you're not oh, supposed man. to type people anyway. But no, you're not supposed no. to. Yeah. I wonder if he's a four. Uh, I'm, I'm, well, I'm a anyway. four. I'm a four, so I want him to be a four. Yeah. Well, I mean, just and, all that. Which, uh, which we, 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 we need to say, like, so a four is. Is sometimes called the romantic of the artist. Okay. Yeah. 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 And at, yeah. so as a four, I want, I want there to be no other fours except for me. But I would make, <laughs> but I would make an exception for Wendell Berry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. My wife, who is a nine thinks he's a nine so nine is a peacemaker uh, right yeah yeah exactly mm, yeah so i don't know i'm a five yeah. right five the investigator yep. the investigator yeah. yeah that's what i i, I seem to always land on um, but i don't think he's an investigator i think he's he's got he's got way more confidence than i do so <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how we'd be able to talk about that for a whole so we just have a whole episode where we just like take the enneagram quiz for him <laughs> I'm sure, like that would be using very using like like direct quotes for, from yeah. like <laughs> like with with proof texts from uh... very, yeah <laughs> like citations. It's a very a very respectful thing to do. Yeah, right. No. Um, yeah. So my favorite, I, I can transition to say my favorite Please passage do, yeah. um, from this first poem is a, it's a little uh, one stanza from section nine, the opening stanza from section nine that really really hit me, and it, it says. Um, and this is after there's that description of the small yellow bird with black wings who's darting in and out, that kind of like mm-hmm. impressionistic kind of view of chaos, whether whatever you want to see that bird as is just a bird or the, their thoughts, their worries, whatever it is that's darting around. And it says at the beginning of Section 9, it says, To imagine the thoughtlessness of a thoughtless thing is useless. The mind must sing of itself to keep awake. And I, that was a, that struck me as a really meaningful piece of just kind of practical advice uh these days which is just interesting with a poem that was written you know what it was at sometime between 60 and 66 is that what it was um 1665 yeah 1665 just that this uh we are in a world that if you're in touch with social media at all and with political situations and stuff like that people are constantly outraged at the thoughtlessness of others which is of course not like a I mean, we were trying to make each other better, but I think that I like what I took from this is that um, just that like living in a state of outrage at other people's thoughtlessness is not a useful way to go about your life. And I think that that's so it, it initially struck me on that sense where I was thinking about kind of sort of like a global view with politics and all of that, just that um, that the mind must just must sing of itself which of course smacks of walt whitman yeah um, no kidding um sing of itself and just that you must you, the, all you need to worry about to be happy and to be fulfilled and to be a good member of your community and your society is to know yourself enough to um to basically not mislead people but then uh i, I then took it from there after thinking about the, sort of the global view and then trying to think you know well i'm I wouldn't think I, th- I think Wendell Berry would probably be thinking on a more local level and then even taking it into my family um, and how I relate with people that are very close with me um, just to say that um, yeah that it's just it's useless to just focus on the imperfections that was just how that struck me and I really like that I, th- I thought about that over the last few days uh, pretty fre- pretty frequently um, and maybe it's because I work with teenagers <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a that's a mark of a good poem that sticks in your mind and yeah. starts applying itself to different situations. Yeah. Well, are you guys okay if we move on to the next poem? Yeah. Let's yeah, do it. it's great. All right. So the next poem in this collection is called "The Handing Down," and it's a young man watching and reflecting on an old man, and the older man is Barry's maternal grandfather that's not made explicit in this poem it is talked about in the next the next poem that we'll we'll get to but it seems to be barry's maternal grandfather and at one point 
in the poem, it talks about the grandfather and grandson sitting and talking on the enclosed porch. And the poem discusses that the, the changes that the older man has seen in his home and his town, and also what has stayed the same too. Just like the last one, the sections in this poem are numbered. And so in section three, which is called The Old Man is Older in History Than in Time, Barry writes this. It starts with a quote from the grandfather. I've lived in two countries in my life and never moved. He has spoken of the steamboats of his boyhood, the whistles still clear to him, and the upriver bends, coming down to the landings now disappeared, their names less spoken every year. He has remembered the open days of that first country. It was free here when I was a boy, and the old brutalities and sorrows. And now they talk of power and politics and war, agonies now and to come, deaths never imagined by the old man's generation. The mistakes of the old become the terrors of the young. In the face of his grandson he sees something of himself going on. Moved by the near suffering of other men, he has taken them into the body of his thought. If I died now, I wouldn't lose much. It's you young ones I worry about. So you have this older man passing memories. I mean, it's called the handing down, and he's handing down memories. He's handing down attentiveness for his place, and I think he's handing down an affection for the place to his grandson. Is that how you guys would, you know, very, very general? It's, it's the longest poem in the collection, and I just gave a fairly short summary, but does that sort of fit with the overall theme for the poem that you were picking up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think for the most part, yeah, I think so. I, I think that one that I that you just read, that, that in, within that was my uh, favorite passage from the from the poem, and I think I took a, a lot more of a uh, kind of a global view on it, which maybe is just as an inevitability of the times that I grew up in. I don't, I don't know, but I read, especially the sections where he says, the mistakes of the old become the terrors of the young. In the face of his grandson, he sees something of himself going on that I, I had seen that and read that, and it had hit me as basically a, an old man wisely pointing out that every generation goes through some version of the same problem that the previous generation went through. You know, um, one generation fights to get something, one generation fights to make it through some sort of problem, and then as a result of that, cause a whole new problem for the next generation that then they have to figure out and then go through and figure out, and then it just kind of is an endless cycle. Um, so that was... I had thought about it as more of a, I guess on a broader, broader sense, or at least that that was how it hit me. But it, probably what you said is more more accurate that he was talking about the place specifically where they are. But um, I, I maybe I had landed on that because there was that mention of of politics and war and these big big issues earlier in that in that section. Yeah. Well, I, what struck me is that we've read a passage of this before in a short story that we've discussed before on this podcast, right? It was free here when I was a boy. I was wondering where I heard that Yeah, that's where, that's what, (laughs) that's what uh, Matt Feltner says to Andy Catlett. I think that's in The Hurt Mm, Man. That's Um, right. Gosh, that was just, that was driving me nuts. I could not figure out where I'd heard that. I I wasn't thinking Wendell Berry. I was thinking outside of Wendell Berry. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, Well, that's your first problem. (laughs) 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 You'd think I'd be focused enough to start there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I think no. I think it's 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 important to realize that this is uh, Matt Feltner um, is definitely styled after Wendell Berry's maternal grandfather um, that we're reading about here. So these words that are coming from his maternal grandfather are later going to come from much later going to come from Matt Feltner, um, mm-hmm. and this may well have been before Matt Feltner the character was uh, was developed. I don't yeah. know. That's a, it's just interesting to think about the blurred lines between the poetry and the fiction. That's yeah, because I mean, if, if Wendell Berry had written this poem recently, he probably would have like 
set this as like he would have been speaking as the character Andy Catlett, right? He's done that in some of his poems mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and in some of his nonfiction recently. So one other thing with that section that I I was gonna try to run by you guys, and now now that and I actually before we came in today, my research hadn't unearthed the like timing issue, John, that you talked about of like sixty and sixty six, and then it came out after or whatever. Um, but I heard. And I guess 66 would work. I don't know when he wrote this section, but in that section, it really made me think about Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why, but that was just like at the front of my mind as I was thinking about it. Um, Moved by the near suffering of other men, he has taken them into the body of his thought. If I died now, I wouldn't lose much. It's the young ones I worry about. Um, I, that was just what I, I, I kind of felt that weight of, of a larger issue I, I don't. It just seemed like he wouldn't have said something like that if it was just about sort of local family, you know, sort of general inheritance of problems or issues, sure. situation. That it just made me think about the the weight of things happening in the world. That '66 would have been, yeah, it was because Vietnam. When did a, a draft started for Vietnam in '65? Or I, I'm, I'm just kind of that's a shot in the dark. But do you know? I don't. Mm-mm. Yeah. Anyways, but I was just wondering if that hit either of you, if you were thinking about. Yeah, that. I mean, I I sort of thought Vietnam was was in 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 the back of this. Um, yeah. So if I died now, I wouldn't lose much. He's lived his whole life, right? Right. Um, it's the young ones. It's you, young ones. I worry about. You've yeah. got all these problems left to figure out that we've left for you. Sure. Basically, including including that. Well, and you young ones are like in danger of dying because of mm-hmm. the draft and because of yeah. because of Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll find out in the at the beginning of the next poem or the next yeah, three elegi- elegiac poems that this grandfather lived between the years 1881 and 1965. I think mm. about what this man saw. He saw the I mean he saw World War 1. He saw World War II. He saw Korea. He sees the ramp up in Vietnam. So yeah. he sees a, not only war, but war unlike you know humankind had ever known before sure. in terms of its destructiveness. May I love that title of that poem, a man, the old man is older in history than in time, which suggests that he lives by the values of maybe a time before all of those wars uh Mm. you know that's sort of the perspective he's bringing to bear on them i liked a lot of the a lot of those section subtitles one is he has lived through another night section seven is the heaviness of of his wind wisdom i like Uh, nine though you can't yeah that's what i was just gonna say yeah, yeah. Though he can't know death, he must study dying. That's, uh... And section thirteen, we'll talk about. Well, I'll mention this when we talk about the next poem. But that section thirteen is entitled "He is in the habit of the world." Hmm. And as we get into the 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 three elegiac poems, we'll see that when he does finally pass away, he's so much in the habit of the world that he's never really gone from it, even after he dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that uh, I think later in in section fourteen, there's the line: "His life has been a monument to the place." I think pairs, mm. you know, slides right in with what you had just said. This side, yeah. Um, that uh, that I don't know. That's just a really I don't even know what to do with that, and just need to unpack it for myself over time. But just this idea that you're that just the life you've lived. I think in a materialist society, um, that the life you live carries uh, a serious weight even if people aren't talking about you you know for the rest of of their lives after you're gone but just that like i don't know acknowledging the impact of a life well lived yeah i was gonna mention uh there is reference to wildness he uses that word wildness in this poem Mm -hmm. um this is in section eight where he says that around the place his living has kept clear uh there's a wildness waiting for him to go and then that wildness of course took me back to this idea of perfection uh from the first poem where it says uh 
you know that 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 opening line is that perfection is a is as wild as light. Just that, um, I don't know. It's it's interesting to think about the the life of Port William. There's there's a line in this poem as well that kind of smacks of Port William, where he says there's a road going in and a ro- and then that road goes out. You know, it feels feels very much it it gives you the impression of Port William. Just that even within a seemingly mundane thing a mundane place that there's a wildness and that that wildness is perceived as perfection by Wendelberry. And that's, it goes back to, you know, when we were talking about in episode zero about what drew me to Jaber Crow, a seemingly boring story uh, that is actually full of wildness mm-hmm. and that that's why it seems so appealing and that, 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 uh, you know, that even, even his writing style, where, whereas it, it can seem simple that I think, in his best moments, and I think Wendell, er, that Jaber Crow has a lot of these best moments where he um, is doing all the things well that he does in his poetry, his essays, and his fiction, all wrapped up into like one, one basket. Yeah. So that's, I think it's it's a good example of how like even in his writing style, his wildness, his like how he's he's willing to jump into poetry and then jump into essays, then jump into fiction. That's what makes it so, so uh, pleasing, so so perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, and like the end of that section eight, um, the the last sort of stanza of that, I, I don't know, stuck out to me as like really, really ominous. <laughs> Ahead of him, he sees as in an old forefather's prophetic dream, the woods take back the land. What do you guys think about that? Interesting. I didn't, I, I didn't take that as, as being ominous i don't know i mean i take that as being ominous in the sense that something cataclysmic has to happen to stop uh to stop our settling of the land right (laughs) and and like you know maybe humans are going to go extinct but the woods will take take the land okay i don't know i can see that i can see that and that's that uh yeah it's like that show on was it discovery channel or history channel where they're like what if we're all dead tomorrow right um here's what's right. going to happen to all these buildings we made and they show like these mm-hmm. progressions of how like sure the world takes it back over the course of hundreds and thousands of years yeah it's funny but like i how i my reading of that was just kind of an acknowledgement of like the living nature of the place that he's in that might be the better way to take it <laughs> that, I don't that, know. like as you as, as you try to trim it back and you try to form it into what you want to do it's just going to keep growing it's just going to keep sure. living and kind of reaching forward <laughs> but but i like thinking about it your way that's that's more fun <laughs> in his book uh, second nature the writer michael pollan writes about carving out a space for a garden near his home and he talks about how he's having to continually cut back the forest that is sort of threatening to overtake the the space that he had set aside for this garden and that if he was not out there diligently that the forest would take it back yeah yeah even even in his own life like even you don't have to go that far into the future sure absolutely Yeah. yeah it's constant so the, the third and final selection is called Three Elegiac Poems. The placement of it is very poignant because it's, you know, it comes just after the last poem about the old man. This here, we know this is definitely Barry's maternal grandfather, whose name was, was Harry Erdman Perry, who lived from 80, 1881 to 1965. And as I've already mentioned, it's <clears throat> we're told that Harry Perry was a man who inhabited the world so well that he remains a part of it forever. I'd like to just read uh, a section. He goes free of the earth. The sun of his last day sets, clear in the sweetness of his liberty. The earth recovers from his dying, the hallow of his life remaining in all his death leaves. Radiances know him. Grown lighter than breath, he is set free in our remembering. Grown brighter than vision, he goes dark into the life of the hill that holds his peace. He is hidden among all that is and cannot be lost. I'm going to go ahead and add that to my will, that that's going to be read at my funeral. So I'm just going to... Give me a second. I'm gonna call my lawyer that doesn't exist. Um, yeah, I'm gonna. <laughs> so that's such a beautiful, uh, beautiful ending. Um, 
God, that, yeah, that line, the hallow of his life remaining in all his death leaves. The hallow of his life. That's, mm-hmm. what a phrase, right? Yeah. Uh, when you think about people who you know who have died, the hallow of their life uh, remains in, in your memories and in the space that they've left. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. The reverence we have. Yeah towards them and i i'm drawn to the next few lines right after that they grown lighter than breath he is set free in our remembering grown brighter than vision he goes dark into the life of the hill that holds his peace i like that's the back goes back to those those uh juxtapositions that we've been talking about of the white and the, the light and the dark um mm-hmm. grown brighter than vision he goes dark <laughs> yeah uh, you're right that's like really a fun turn of phrase like he goes brighter than vision he goes dark into the life of the hill that uh, the brightest moment of his life is the, the moment when he's in the darkest place that he's been, which is in within this hill, which is, I think it, uh, and I was at somewhere. I don't remember where it was, where they talked about this hill. I think it was in the, it was earlier in, uh, in this, in this poem where they're talking about, they mentioned the graveyard mm-hmm. and that it's this place up on a hill in the town that speaks to them constantly. Yeah, where it's yeah. constantly communicating something to him. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I think the section you're referring to is uh, section four of uh, the handing down, um, where uh, section four is titled "He looks out the window at the town." So this is um, Harry Erdman Perry looking out at the town, um, and it talks a lot about the graveyard. Um, talking about the graveyard it says or talking about the town it says it suffers its dead beside it under the particular grass the summery stone their hill keeps a silence into which the live town speaks a little they are the town's shut record all their complexity perished victims of epidemics meanness foolishness heredity war recklessness chance pride time None have ever, none ever escaped. That is the history of the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's... It's more obvious how the second section, the handing down, and the third section, three elegiac poems, fit together. But as we sort of wrap up our discussion, I'm curious how, if the two of you have thoughts on how all three of the selections that we read together, including the first selection. How does the first selection fit into numbers two and three? I mean, I think a lot of what he's dealing with in the first section is how, what it means to build a house for your family in light of the fact that your family is going to die. (laughs) Mm, I mean, he speaks of marriage in that light, right? That, uh, That he's living with the reality that that his wife is going to die, you know, yes. um, and that they are going to die and the house is likely going to outlive them. Um, this reminds me of that Jason Isbell song. If we were vampires. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Just the, yeah, that with just with that, what you're just saying about the acknowledgement of one of us is going to die. That's right. just what's going to happen. Um, so it's, it's about preparing for that. Sure. Um, I, I almost think of this like timeline wise as like backwards. Huh. Uh, where the, yeah. this poem is Wendell Berry, Andy Callow, whatever, speaking. The, the, the first one, the, the first poem, The Design of a House, is uh, his character sp- either speaking before his grandfather has died, or sorry, after his grandfather has died. Mm-hmm. Or it's like in conjunction with this where this is like, here's the house that I'm trying to make my, for myself, and now here is me learning from my grandfather in the last moments that I have with him. So the, to me, like in the, in my readings, they felt connected from the start. Like yeah. I just felt like a really easy connection between them just cause I, and this is because of an assumption, right? It's because of an assumption I had that, uh, the narrator of that first poem is the same kid who's, or the same, you know, kid, not kid, but same young person who's, who's observing his grandfather. Well, and in the second poem, the handing down, 
someone's building a house somewhere in the town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and apparently the grandfather is really interested in that. So, I mean, it's not obvious that it's the the young man's house that's being built, but yeah, and I actually had a when I had first seen that, that's in uh, section 11. Uh, there's no need to hurry to die. His days are received and let go as birds fly. Through the broken windows of an old house, all his traps are baited but not set. No, actually, that's not the section. I was, that's not the section you're talking about. I, had no, I knew I had marked something about a house, and the, the, that would, but still, it kind of connects because that old house he was referring when I the the note that I wrote in the margin was that that he is the old house, right? mm-hmm. the, the, like that that if you follow that metaphor through, the, yeah, there's this house being built, and that the old house is is the old man who's, who's, who's nearing the end of his life. Yeah. I misremembered that and got too excited. I should have, I should have pumped the, pumped the brakes. So, yeah, I think the, the section that, that you're referring to is section six of the handing down. And that section is called the new house. And it shows the older man walking across town to watch carpenters, carpenters who are building a new house, um, so it's a obviously a symbol of the new, a symbol of of the town going on, and then in the very final stanza of the whole poem, um, it says that the old man is sort is has come back from his walk, and it says now resting from his walk, he's comforted by the sounds of hammering, half listened to. He is comforted, not because he hopes for much but because he knows of hope, its losses and uses. He has gone in the world, visioning a house worthy of the child newborn in it. I think I can say that this conversation, which is one of our goals from the first episode, is that we'd help each other have more clarity about things. And I think that mm-hmm. um, I definitely feel much more of an attachment to these poems, um, having talked to you about this and having like sorted this out yeah, in conversation. Likewise. Because the first time, the first reading, they were definitely uh, blurry to me. Uh, they seemed like more work than I'm used to with the Wendell Berry poem. Uh, and then just as con- continued readings help them sort of open up. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad we... This is obviously, but I'm just glad we're we're going through it in order, and I'm glad we are putting ourselves in a position that's, position that's out of our comfort zone as far as what we're paying attention to and what we're reading. So, I'm, I I think I have a, a much more of an appreciation for these for these poems thanks to both of your insights. And doesn't that seem like that's how it should be with Wendell Berry's poems? Like they're they're poems that open up within community, within conversation. Yeah, yeah for sure. That seems right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll be able to keep that up again next time because our next episode is also about a collection of poems. We're, we kind of have these these two episodes in a row that gets us caught up chronologically with some of the nonfiction. Our next book is going to be the collection that we referenced earlier in the episode, and it's called Openings. It is the third selection in the new collected poems. So if you're reading along with us, which we hope you're having a conversation along with us about these poems. And so we hope that you'll you'll continue to 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 read with us and read openings for the next episode. Again, that can be found in the new collected poems. I was going to mention to everybody as you're talking about the readings that uh, I know that here in Johnson City, and I assume that if it's here, then it'd be a lot of other places, that if you're a user of the public library and you use the, the Libby app or the OverDrive app, I know here um, new collected poems as well as a lot of other Wendell Berry works are available digitally um, as part of the uh, the library's uh, effort to yeah make ebooks and audiobooks available. So if you can get a copy to support Counterpoint Press, that's great. But also supporting your local library through using the Libby app or using OverDrive, uh, you can you know fairly likely find a copy of new collected poems. And, and some of the other readings that we're doing through uh, through there. So I just wanted to throw that out there. So if you're if you're not familiar with that, it's a there there are a couple apps that you can use where you put in your library card number and you can check out ebooks and audiobooks through through it. All right, just a final reminder that all of today's poems were from 
New Collected Poems by Wendell Berry, copyright Counterpoint 2012. The membership is a proud member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. To discover other great podcasts, please visit www.rabbitroom.com podcasts. And make sure to find us online as well. We're at membershippod.com. That's our website. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. In all three places, just uh, look up at membershippod and you'll find us. And if you, it would be a great help to us if you were to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase our visibility and also just lets us know that, that people are out there listening and enjoying the podcast. And uh, yeah, just look forward to staying connected with you however we can. Thanks again.